for downloading episode 49 of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. On this episode, I spoke with three musicians who are still working at a high level decades after first getting into the business. And those are Boney James, John Fratelli of the Fratellis, and Dexter Holland of The Offspring. First up is my interview with Boney James. And when I think of R&B and jazz-oriented saxophone players, I think of Boney. His new album is called Solid. I think it's its 17th overall album. He produced and wrote or co-wrote all the tracks on this album. I believe two singles from the album have already charted, even though it's a June 2020 release. Boney has been doing things at a high level for decades, as I said in the intro before. He's a two-time NAACP award nominee, a Soul Train Award winner, Billboard accolades, Grammy nominations... I think he has 11 number one Billboard jazz albums. It doesn't get much better than that. Really, really nice guy. He got his start as a sideman, and he worked with Morris Day from Morris Day in the Time. We spoke a little bit about that. I think you're going to like this one. You're somebody who has been at it for decades at a really, really high level. I'm curious when you stopped worrying like, hey, is this going to be a career? And when was it like, well, there's going to be more tours and more albums? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Uh, I don't think you ever stop worrying, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm worried now. Yeah, I always worry when the new record is coming out and how people are going to, you know, respond to the music, uh, just on an artistic level, or whether it's going to be successful and whether the label will be happy and people coming to the shows. I mean, I think it's kind of a constant thing when you're sort of putting your out, yourself out there creatively with work you've you've made, and and uh, you know, I mean, it, financially, that's that's a different thing, you know. Um, but you know, for me, it's much more about the the work connecting and how it's going to go on that level. And you have a new album coming out next month through Concord Records. When you were making it, did you know outright that it was going to be for Concord, or did you make it and then shop it? I've been with Concord off and on since about 2003. I made a few, I think three or four records there, and then I went to Verve for one record, then I went back to Concord for another three records. And this, this deal is, is, a, is a, new, a new record contract, but it's sort of an extension of the old deal. You know, sort of, we did know that they wanted to keep going, and we were sort of renegotiating the deal during the period where I was making the record because I had just was kind of itching to get going. But yeah, it was sort of always known that, that uh, it was going to be on Concord again. So it's, it's been a pretty long relationship now. Absolutely. And you also are using musicians and writers and producers that you've been using on and off for decades as well. How much of that is by design and how much of that is actually planned in terms of being this long-term relationship-oriented kind of guy? 
Well, you know, I, I do have some some fresher names. I mean, I never worked with Kenny Lattimore before the big the the, the guest star singer on there, and um, a couple of the co-writers are are newer. But yeah, I mean, you know, look, I mean, that's one of the great things about being in the business as long as I have is that you you sort of you know develop relationships with people that you know can deliver a certain kind of sound, and and um, I just have a lot of respect for these other people that I'm I'm working with, whether as as co-writers or or just session musicians and the. the the drummer on the record is the guy that's been touring in my band for 15 years now. And so I just, he knows what I'm looking for. And there's that ease of communication in the studio that really is a valuable thing. People who go back into your career's early days when you're working as a sideman, the Isley Brothers, Morris Day, Tina Marie and all that. Was it outright that you wanted to be a solo artist and you were paying your dues by being a sideman? Or did you actually think there was a possibility of being a sideman your whole career? Well, you know, I, I knew I loved music and that this was the one thing that I did want to try and pursue as a career. And when I first started, I was really just very grateful to be making a living as a musician. And I thought that that was it. You know, I, I had been delivering pizzas, trying to figure out how to break into the business. And then I got that first gig with Morris and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. You know, you can just be a musician and tour around. And, and But, you know, my ambition started to grow. And over the years that I was a sideman, it was about seven years I did really start to get frustrated and unhappy because I was just recreating other people's music, you know, learning the parts they played on the records. And, and, uh, I had also started trying to write songs and I was trying to write songs to get them covered by pop artists. Like many of the sidemen were doing, you know, try and get a big Madonna hit or something like that. But I realized I wasn't liking any of the songs that I was writing and um, wasn't having much success with getting them covered by other people. So I thought, well, let me just see if I can write songs that are more personal to me. And, and that was when it all started to click for me, because I really loved writing that music, and I thought they were better songs. And I thought, well, gee, maybe, maybe there's a way for me to get this music out there. And that's when I kind of got the idea to try and maybe make it as a solo artist. So it was, it was a few years into the working as a sideman that I did sort of realize this wasn't for me and that maybe I needed to, to set my sights a little higher. And if I've done my research correctly, you're originally from New Rochelle, which is one of those towns that's just right outside of New York City. You know, you meet people from New York City and they think it's forever away. And people from New Rochelle are basically like, yeah, it's 30 minutes outside of the city. And a lot right. of movies have taken place there. A lot of authors have set their books there. But who was the first entertainer or what was the first thing from New Rochelle that you saw that you went, I can have a career being a person from New Rochelle. I can be famous. You know, I don't think I had any real sort of, uh, you know, North Star type of people that I could think of, you know, but I was just a kid. I mean, we moved away when I was 14. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't really thinking on that level. I don't think I ever really did even when I moved to Los Angeles. I just was kind of trying to, you know, I, I kind of like sort of a keep your head down and just do the work kind of person. So, I mean, I did. I do remember that the Dick Van Dyke show was set in New Rochelle, which I always thought was pretty funny because I was a big fan of the Dick Van Dyke show back in the old days. But, um, you know, definitely New York City was much more of a music town. But I was, as I said, so young when we moved away that I don't think I'd really started to wrap my head around ideas like that yet. And going back to your regular work as both a recording artist and a touring artist, because some people who are recording artists don't really cut it as touring artists and vice versa. When did you start to realize that things were going to be shifting towards a touring kind of existence, that the albums were going to be promoting the tours and not vice versa? Well, I think that's very synergistic. And, and even in, in this new era where the record sales are not as important as they used to be back in the day, it's still synergistic. You know, 
the, 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 I always loved playing live. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the first reason I thought I wanted to be a musician anyway, just because I loved being on stage and playing with a band and in the same space as the audience and that communal sense that you get from a live gig. But I did discover once I started making records that I loved that part too. And that the meticulous permanence of making something like that, that just, you know, it's, it's just a, a really another fabulous aspect of, of this job. Um, but I do think that the, the the records feed the gigs and the gigs, you know, make fans that want to hear what your the new songs you're writing. So I, I think that it's it's all part of the same, the two sides of the same coin, really. What is life like for you outside of music? Now, people who follow you closely do know that your wife is an actress and a director, per se, and you have worked together. But is there a lot going on besides music in your life, music and marriage, rather? Not really. I'm, I'm a very quiet, homebody type of person when I'm not uh, gigging. You know, I'm, I'm always out here in my studio in the backyard every day, just about practicing my saxophone, even if I'm not making a new record. And, um, it, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I don't do much, but, but think about music and hang out with my wife. And, and that's, that's a great life for me. So not an MMA fan or something random like that. And I ask that because you find a lot of musicians actually are into golf, whether or not they're public about it. Yeah. I know a lot of musicians that love to play golf. Uh, that is not me. Um, you know, I think golf is another thing that, that people get super passionate about and you have to practice golf all the time. And I've already got that with the saxophone. So <laughs> I'm very fortunate that my hobby of playing the saxophone and writing songs is also my job. So, you know, it's all fun for me. It doesn't feel like work that I need to relax from at all. I'm always just having fun when I'm, I'm dealing with music. Um, I like to read in my spare time. You know, that's, that's something I do like to do. Um, I'm not a sports fan or anything like that. You know, I'm just a little sort of a simple cat. And that's really awesome to hear. And one other thing that I'm curious about when you're talking to somebody who's a master of their instrument is whether they also play an instrument or two for fun that they kind of struggle with just to be able to like exercise that part, that part of their mind, really. Well, you know, I mean, as a sax player, you know, when I was a sideman, you know, there was often an expectation that you would need to play some flute as well. Um, so I did get one of those and try and learn, and I never became very good at it. Although there is a little flute on the new record. I pulled it out of the closet, did some background flute parts on the record, and I was able to make it sound good enough to put on the record. Um, I did learn how to play keyboards when I was younger, just to write songs, and, and that was actually my first entree into being a sideman. I, I toured with Morris Day as a, as a keyboard player, and, and most of the gigs that I did, I was sort of a keyboard slash sax player. Um, so that's still there. It's more of a tool, though, for writing now. I'm, I'm not a great keyboard player by any means, but um, those are the other two instruments I kind of play sort of poorly, but enough to get by. Uh, but I don't have like a hobby. You know, I don't like to pick up the guitar in my spare time and stuff like that. And I would be mad at myself if I didn't ask. In touring with Morris Day, what kind of a band leader was it? Because he was kind of like Prince. He was kind of like James Brown in that he was a band leader who didn't really pick up an instrument much per se. Was it a lack situation? Was it more of a boot camp kind of situation? Can you elaborate on that one? Well, I think Morris had come up through those Prince ranks, you know, and Prince was definitely more of a James Brown kind of, you know, I don't want to say controlling, but certainly, you know, the, a band leader that, that wanted a certain discipline in the band. And I think Morris emulated that, certainly. Um, 
Yeah, so I think that that, that was, it was definitely that kind of Minneapolis kind of Prince slash James Brown kind of thing. Um, great musicians in that band, you know. And actually, I've had the opportunity to, to share the, the bill with Morris and, and, and his band, and many of the cats that are there were there when I was playing with him, golly, 30 years ago still. So that was kind of fun to run into them out there on the road. So bring everything full circle here. Sounds like you're in touch with your past in a great way, still plugging ahead into the future. So in closing, Boney, any last words for the kids? Um, <laughs> stay in school. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> Outrocast. Next up is my chat with John Fratelli, the singer of the Fratellis. Fratellis have been prominent for about 15 years now, probably first in the States with the song Chelsea Dagger. That song you've heard hundreds of times if you go to sporting events, watch beer commercials and all that, but that's only one of probably 10 to 15 hits that the Fratellis have had at this point. Their next album is called Half Drunk Under a Full Moon. It's slated for release in the fall. Prior to its release, the group put out a single with P.P. Arnold on vocals, and that one benefits people affected by the current COVID-19 pandemic. John spoke about that within our chat. He spoke about success in general. Really nice, laid-back guy. And this one is on camera if you subscribe to my YouTube channel and you want to see the visuals of him. He looks dapper as always. But I really like John, and it's great to see him still humble after all these years and still doing the artist thing on every level. Enjoy. I have a great new collaboration with P.P. Arnold. How did that one come about? Uh, the exact mechanics, uh, I either can't remember or wasn't privy to, but we were, we were, we had already recorded that song for the record that we were, we were well, that we were supposed to put out, but it'll come later in the year. And, uh, you know, somebody had the idea of, of there was something about the song that uh, might suit a, a female perspective. Right. Uh, you know, like the, it has a narrative. And, and I, I did the vocal, and my vocal was okay. But there were the first, somebody brought that idea up, and I thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. But it had to be the right person. You know, you could, you could throw it to any number of young singers, you know. You know, even ones that people just, there's a lot of good singers out there, even ones that people don't know of. Right. But that wouldn't really have been, that wouldn't have, that would have been beside the point. Um, it needed somebody with some character. Um, and and somehow, somehow all of a sudden, P.P. Arnold wanted to do it. You know, my only regret is that because we did it when, when lockdown happened, we didn't quite, well, we, you know, we never got anywhere near to, to doing with it what we would have done had we all been in the studio together. Um, so I think we managed to pull, given that we all played in our own houses, and I think we managed to pull it together okay. Oh, it sounds fantastic, and it's going towards a, a great cause. Is it going to be on Half Drunk Under a Full Moon? Yeah, not that, not that version. We'll have the, you know, this is like a cover version of a song that nobody's heard before. Um, so our original version, which is quite different, uh, that will be on the record. And you did this new record with Tony Hoffer. Uh, before I ask about that, it's still coming out in October? 
at, at the moment, yeah. Right, right. As far as anybody knows. Tony has done so many great records. Uh, I think his big break came from working with Beck when they were living in a house together. Was Beck the artist that really drew you towards wanting to work with Tony? No, I mean, the funny thing is that at the time, um, I mean, you know, you, you sign a record deal. Uh, you might have heard of the odd producer. You know, you might have heard of people who, who win in 10 Grammys every year. Right. But, you know, I wasn't really up to speed on, on, on producers in general. So when his name came up, it meant nothing to me in the beginning. <laughs> then when I read um, his discography, it was the, the Beck stuff that jumped out to me because I was a huge Beck fan at the time. Still am. You know, you don't stop becoming one. Uh, that kind of, that, that was pretty much enough for me. Uh, fun, funnily enough, though, the first time we spoke, we spoke by telephone one night. and. Sure. Uh, and we, you know, just to just to see if if it was a good fit, and uh, you know, we fell out, um, which was completely my fault. And Tony's the kind of guy that you, I don't know what you would have to do to fall out with him, but I, I I managed it on the first conversation. You know, I just said something flippantly that, and then the phone went very silent for a long time. So it's you know. It started off weird, but over the years we've become really solid, good friends, and um, I have so much appreciation for what he does. I, I, the mind boggles at how he continually keeps producing great sounding records, and I've learned so much from him. And keeping things, you know, present. I read that Views is going to be sponsoring your tour. Is that a private thing or is that something you can talk about? Um, I, I, I'm sure I can talk about it. I mean, I'm not sure what I could, you know, you can, you can try. <laughs> well, it's the kind of thing that bands nowadays don't really have tour sponsors, but the Rolling Stones, I believe, were the first band to do that. I think Legs was who sponsored and all that. Was that yeah. something that you sought out or the brand went, we love you guys, we want to give you a good check and help promote the tour? You know, these things are usually... There's so many connections in, in any industry. Mm -hmm. and I, so I don't think it was even as straightforward as them saying, hey, we want you guys, or us saying, hey, we want them. Uh, it was far more organic than that. It just it actually came up just through, by chance, through a particular friendship. And, uh, and I had absolutely no issue with it, you know. Um, touring is, is where a band like us really earns a living. Mm -hmm. uh, and somebody wanting to basically underwrite an entire tour, you know, you, you would have to be dumb, you know, uh, to, to, to say no to that. Um, right. Plus, you know, everybody in the band smokes, so, <laughs> and vapes at the same time. At the so, same time, that's talent. But clearly, we had, <laughs> clearly we had no issue with it. Right. Well, 
take these next few questions as massive compliments. Your songs are as catchy now as they ever were. And on that first album, my exposure to your band for the first time was Chelsea Dagger. I'm sure like everybody it was. And songs just don't get any catchier than that. Did you have any fear at the beginning? Like, oh my God, we set the bar way too high with this one? No, quite the opposite. Um, really? Because an audience is, re you know, you've got the audience's reaction here and then the, the artist's reaction there. And they're not always the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so no, it really, that, that didn't come into my thinking. As soon as one song is finished, you move on to the next song. As soon as one record's finished, you know, I'm almost disinterested in that record. You know, it's taken yeah. so much. It takes so much to, to, to make a record. But when you fin finally get to the day when you say, okay, I think this one's finished. We can stop now. Yeah. That's the moment you move on to something else. Um, so... No, I, it, that, you know, that question comes up a lot, or, or, or a version of that question comes up a lot. Sure. Did, did, did you ever feel that, that, it, that it created pressure? Or, the thing is, it really didn't. Um, and I guess, personally, I must be quite fortunate in that way. Because mm -hmm. the, the idea of trying to beat you know, like like it's a like it's a contest where you have to, you know, yeah, so not a contest. Part. Yeah, yeah. This record was so you know so successful. You know, do you? But you want to beat it? I mean, that would be a a really sad way to live your life. It, it wouldn't. It really even the thought of that because I, I imagine there are some people that that do that. You know, like you have to you have to constantly uh, sell more each time and right that that must drive people insane you know yeah yeah it did to fleetwood mac and if it does to them then it applies to just about any artist there is but to me the funny thing about chelsea daggers how many people ripped off that song like the the theme song to the tv show the league and wwe had a wrestler theme song that was a kind of a copycat of that yeah. kind of thing. Did you take all that as tribute, as an honor, or how do you think about that kind of thing? Well, no, the, my only thought about any of that is, you know, if they are, can, can, you know, can we get our lawyer to, to, to look into this? You know, that's, that's really all. And it's a funny thing because, you know, we're seeing it more and more now, right? Where where songwriters have been taken to court. Yeah, you know, and I find that whole thing just baffling. I, that could take us to a place where, I mean, pop music's been recycled since the fifties. It's been you know, and it's it's gone through thousands and thousands of recycling. Yeah, so. All of a sudden now, people supposedly in charge are deciding that that can't happen. And it, that just blow, blows my mind because 
you know, where are we going to get to? You're going to get to the point where nobody can write anything. <laughs> well, there, are, there are only, tw- uh, let's say, 12 notes. There's actually only yes. 11, 11 notes because the, tw- the 12th are just the octave. So that stuff baffles me. Yet at the same time, if there's, if there's money going, you know, if, the, if somebody does take one of your songs and, you know, really very obviously rips it off, yeah. Then, then I'm willing to play that game and say, yeah, okay, if there is money there, then okay, I'll take it. But I would never go aggressively trying to, it would have to happen by chance. You're a man of taste all these years later. We, we can say that much. And it, very, very few positive things have come out of this pandemic and people quarantined. But one of them was the recent reunion of the cast of The Goonies online. Was that something that you saw? No, I missed that. Um, I haven't seen the movie, though. Um, really? Yeah. I've, I've, I think I've seen enough chunks of it in the wrong order in the whole movie. But um, the whole Guinness thing was never my, it was Barry, our bass player. Uh-huh. He was the one who, who came up with that name and uh, it sounded good to me. So, But I never had to look into it any more than that. Wow, that's very interesting for me to hear on a few levels. Uh, one of them being that whatever you name your band, people are going to bring you memorabilia or references to that thing all the time so i thought that your wall was just going to be nothing but gold records and goonies memorabilia but i am proven wrong on both ends no i'm i gave my uh, records away I, I i couldn't get my head it just seemed like uh oh aggrandizing and to the to the highest degree to have these things you know, look what I did. So I, I gave them to people. My mum and dad have one. <laughs> okay. That's a good mantelpiece. <laughs> so they're, they're happy with it. So three quick questions, and then you are a free man, even though I know you have your Reddit AMA in a couple hours and all that. I do, and I still haven't worked out how that whole thing works, but, you know. It'll be interesting. You'll get the, the feel of it after two or three questions. You'll You'll always be behind... By three questions, but if you just say I'm giving them 90 minutes, and you clock out at 90 minutes, there you go. <laughs> and how long are people doing it for? I think what happens is a couple of people are on time and getting their questions, and then other people say, "Oh, he's doing an AMA. I'll throw in a question," and it just kind of keeps going on until you say it's not going anymore. Okay, I'm thinking like an hour is that, that seems fair to me. If you got an hour, they got an hour from you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the first thing is, uh, with all the quarantining, have there been any new TV or movie recommendations that you can pass along of things that have been great that you discovered? No, because the thing is, the way I live my life is really no different to, to the lockdown life. Like I spend 90% of my time in my house, in this room. Uh, this is where I write and, and, and play around with music. So really, my life hasn't, hasn't changed that. I'm one of the fortunate ones. Who, it, there, there are so many, there's a lot of people I know that really, they're not having a good time with it. But right. uh, 
I'm, I'm a, a nice place where, you know, this hasn't changed my life that much. So I really haven't watched. The only thing I've done in this, other than make music in this period, I read Woody Allen's autobiography and I love Woody Allen. So, you know, it, it, naturally I enjoyed that book. Cool. Second question. Other than the Fratellis, who is the best Scottish band of all time? You can say Teenage Fan Club if it's that hard. Yeah, no, De Deacon Blue. Deacon Blue, okay. Or, or, or the Proclaimers. The Proclaimers okay. are, are so damned original that there is nobody else doing what they do. So possibly them. Okay, I'm going to do some more digging in their catalog. So in yeah. closing, any last words for the kids? Uh, my kids? <laughs> uh, any kids that you think might be listening to this? Uh, you know, a lot of musicians call the audience the kids, so it's whoever you think. Well, you know, eat your vegetables. <laughs> Go to bed at a reasonable hour. Sure. Um, and always make sure that you never quite do what you're supposed to do. You never quite obey the rules. Um, there's too many. Uh, the world needs more people who break rules. Right. Well, you've been very generous with your time here. So thank you so much. And really hope to see you live in New York when this all blows over. I, I'm, I can't wait. <laughs> cool. Thank you, man. Have a great rest of the day. Good luck with the AMA. Thank you. Goodbye. Last and definitely not least here is my interview with Dexter Holland, the singer and primary songwriter of The Offspring. The Offspring's first hit was over 25 years ago. It's kind of funny and sad at the same time to be saying that because I think about my teenage years where I'm hearing Come Out and Play and Self Esteem and all these songs on the radio all the time. But the reality is we all grow up, we all get older, but at the same time, the hits have never stopped coming for The Offspring, and the band is still playing arenas and major festivals around the world. Yet, music is only one of the areas of success for Dexter, who is a doctor. <laughs> but he also is the founder of Gringo Bandito Hot Sauce. Yes, Gringo Bandito, great name. That is him on the label with the sombrero and all that kind of stuff. But it started off as a little bit of a hobby for him of, hey, uh, I'm gonna make some hot sauce and give to my friends as holiday presents. And it evolved to being sort of a side hustle. And then it evolved into being a real, real company. People have been following Dexter and The Offspring for a long time will remember that he had a record company called Nitro Records that kind of discovered or at least gave early starts to bands like AFI and The Vandals and all that. but. Dexter has applied some of those music-oriented principles to running Gringo Bandito. We spoke about that. I also got him to open up about his punk roots and the damned and what it's like to fly a plane because this man is very, very talented and he also flies a plane. Nice, nice guy. I could have spoken to him for hours, but we kept this one short and sweet. Enjoy. I've been listening to your music for about 25 years now, and I've known about the hot sauce for about, I'd say about 10 because of the Adam Carolla show. Was that a big turning uh, point, Adam's show, where you started making appearances and talking about it? Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, and it wasn't planned that way. We just knew each other from, from K-Rock, really. And uh, 
I gave him the hot sauce and he just happened to like it. So it was very natural that it was something that he just got a kick out of and liked and uh, kind of just a coincidence that his audience are the kind of folks that like hot sauce. And so it ended up being a, a nice way to have both those things come together. Right. And the hot sauce has been around for more than 15 years. But what exactly was the point that it turned from a hobby into a real business for you? You know, I guess there's two points. One where all my buddies said, hey, you should put this out. And you kind of laugh it off. Ha, ha, ha. And then they go, no, you should really put this out. Like the response I was getting was, was very real. And I, it kind of made me think about it. And uh, I think the other one was that we got into a local supermarket chain um, just because I was as an old friend who happened to work there and got it in there and it started doing really well in this local chain. So that kind of made it feel real, right? When it's getting sold <laughs> in an actual establishment. It's like when you uh, are selling t-shirts out of the back of your car <laughs> at a club and then all of a sudden you're in hot topic, you know, then it's, then it's the real deal. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Good analogy there. But this is not your first successful company. Nitro Records ran for a long time. Did the closure of Nitro have anything to do with you taking the hot sauce into a real, real business? I'm thinking. I'm trying to put the time the timeline together. I don't think so because I think I started the hot sauce. Yeah, I started the hot sauce before I stopped doing Nitro. You know, Nitro was so great and it was so much fun. And uh, I had a blast because it was like I was making records and putting out records by my friends. Uh, and it was really great. And, and the, the bands that I started the label with, they ultimately grew and developed and moved on and had successful careers and stuff. And, uh, and just the economics of the record business made it really difficult to be an indie label and stuff. So it was kind of like, eh, I've had a good run with this. In that sense, I guess it allowed me to spend a little more time uh, focusing on the hot sauce. Have you found there to be a lot of similarities between running a hot sauce company and running a label? And feel free to say no. Uh, well, <laughs> I would call it a DIY thing. Does anyone know what DIY even means anymore? Do it yourself, right? Uh, there's definitely been that kind of ethic in terms of my, my interests being, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's what I love to do, but I guess you could call it small business in, in, a, in a way because when we started with the band, we had, to, we had to make our own T-shirts and our own designs and record our own records and stuff. And it was kind of the same way with Nitro. It was definitely, you know, we hired, we had four people, and we just kind of did everything. And the hot sauce is definitely the same kind of um, mentality where uh, I developed the recipe myself and my friends just liked it. And then we just started giving it out to, to friends and other bands. And, and it sort of just grew from there. So I suppose there is a parallel. Is it on your rider for every gig that it has to be the hot sauce that's on site? <laughs> you know, I've requested that we put it in catering because why not? You know, everyone's there. Uh, so we definitely, when we, when we go on tour, the hot sauce goes on tour. Makes sense to me. And you did a great recent collaboration with Chronic Tacos, benefiting schools that were affected by COVID-19. How did that one come about? Yeah, well, you know, I've, we've been friends, us and the Chronic Tacos guys, for a long time, uh, for a long time now. Uh, you know, they also kind of came up in a similar way. They had a very small taco shop in uh, Newport Beach. It did really well. They expanded into a second one and a third one and a fourth one. And so I think we kind of just get along from having started small and being sort of from the same area in Orange County. And uh, they've been a big fan of the hot sauce and they brought it into all their um, stores, all the restaurants early on. Um, so there's been kind of a collaboration that's gone back and forth uh, ever since then. And, and so when uh, they actually 
had the idea like, hey, we want to do this because of what's going on with the virus. You know, we think it's a cool thing. And would you like to be involved? And of course, it was easy to say, well, sure, that, that sounds great. Bringing it back to you here, people who've been following you a long time know that you're a person of many interests. Besides the fact that you're still playing arenas and festivals around the world, you got the successful hot sauce, you're a PhD. Besides the label and all that, you're a pilot as well. I think you're kind of like the punk rock Bruce Dickinson. Is that a <laughs> description that's ever come up to you? <laughs> a punk rock Bruce Dickinson. Okay. All right. Uh, would that make him a metal Dexter? I don't know how that would work. But uh, you just mean that in the sense that we both fly airplanes and we're both singers and bands. Is that, is that what you mean? <laughs> Well, Maiden has their beer that's on the market and growing that started off as a hobby thing that turned out to be a growing thing in general. And then you in general are just active when it comes to being a media personality. Where I'm going with this is when did you realize that you didn't just want to be a famous singer? Oh, I see. I see. Oh, oh gosh. I don't know. I've always wanted to do a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, I was, I, I was in grad school. I eventually finished to get the doctorate, but you know, I felt like I really wanted to do the band thing as well, but I didn't want to give up um, working on the degree. And the way things worked out, I had to kind of come back to that. But there's always been things like, you know, on the back burner, like, you know, I'm in school, I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing airplanes fly by and go, oh man, you know, one day I want to, I want to get my license, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. In terms of flying a plane, is it harder than everyone thinks that it is? Or is it the kind of thing where other skills that you learned, you were able to apply to do that? Uh, it's incredibly dangerous. <laughs> it's amazing we're still here. No, I'm just kidding. I guess it's like anything else. You know, you have to make sure. You, I mean, there, there's obviously, there can be some danger if you fuck up, right? So you have to take take what you're doing very seriously when it comes to flying in terms of preparing and studying and, and, uh, and, and really staying current is a big thing in flying. You don't want to not fly for two years and then take it up. You want to keep up with it and stuff. Uh, so it, I guess it's a, a little bit different skill set. It's something that I just always thought I would like to do. And when I finally got in a cockpit and started flying, it was just like, yep, this is, this is what I thought it was going to feel like. And, and I love it. I mean, you know, some people, golf or fish or whatever. And I like to fly airplanes. That is the exact quote that I was looking for right there. When I interviewed Captain Sensible from the Damned and I asked how being covered by the offspring changed his life at all. He talked about the great experience of flying on your plane. Were you piloting on that case or is it just, you took him for a ride? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was, I was flying that day. How funny. It has been a long time. I mean, the Damned, they're, they're our heroes. They're just so great. And uh, when it came up that they were looking for a label, we jumped at the chance. And it was such a great experience working with those guys. And um, well, you're talking about covering. We covered their, uh, we covered Smash It Up way before that even. Because that's, again, such a great song. We were looking for a good cover to do. And, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of great punk songs, but there's not a lot of great punk songs. <laughs> if you know what I mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> And the, and the damned wrote great songs. They're actually really good songwriters. And, and that's why we wanted to, to choose that song to do. It was one of the first times we had actually covered another punk band to release, I guess. Right. It is a cover that still holds up. I think the Batman Forever soundtrack had it and all that. So looking forward to everything. Is the goal ultimately to turn 
your hot sauce brand into having other products besides hot sauce? You know, we've kind of dabbled with the idea of doing something else. You know, for right now, we've expanded our line into four. We got four hot sauces, and uh, I like that for right now. I know sometimes people, they go crazy, and they got 10 different flavors, and personally, that feels like it's too much. You know, I think you can cover the bases with a good red, a good green, something that's a little extra spicy. Yeah, and our thing, we also we did a, a yellow, which is a, just a different kind of flavor. It's more of a Caribbean flavor, I guess. But um, um, that feels like enough to me. If I were really to expand it anything else, you know what I think I would pick? would probably be tequila. I would, I would forego, you know, it's natural. Everyone thinks you're going to go into chips and salsa and whatever else. But fuck that. I'm, if I do anything else, I'm jumping straight to tequila. I don't know if that's an exclusive or not, but... Again, you gave me plenty to work with there. So I'm going to ask you the closing question, and that's any last words for the kids? For the kids. Oh, man. Keep it up. Uh, you know, I think that the, the moral of our band is don't let other people tell you what to do. Uh, you know, think for yourself and follow your, your own heart and your own spirit to do uh, what you want to do. You know, when people say, what is punk? You know, punk is different for everybody. You know, I think if you looked at the Sex Pistols, it would be very nihilistic if you looked at the dead kennedys it'd be very political if you looked at you know minor threat it would be something completely completely different and somehow they were all under the 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 the, what the umbrella of punk rock and for us i think it was just think for yourself and do what you want and and, uh don't let other people dictate how your life is supposed to be great well i do hope to see you live in new york as soon as this all blows over thank you so much for your time and i'll tag you guys in the articles when they come out okay it was great talking to you thank you Thanks for checking out the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz, produced by V13 Media, theme song by Steve Schiltz, audio mixing by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Paltrowcast.